Hello, hello. It is Monday. This is the Religious Studies Project. I'm Chris Carter. He's David Robertson. And uh, we are brought to you, as you will hear throughout the podcast, by the BASR, NASR, and IAHR. Weather's getting a little bit better, though we still had some snow in Edinburgh in April, which was a little bit odd. Although apparently, according to social media, this had happened six years ago. It was dredging up um, photos of snow from from April 2012 or something. Well, it's not that unusual in the long term. It's more that recently winters have been mild. This is actually standard because you'll know the old Scottish expression, cast not your clute till maybe oot. (laughs) Because the last frost dates in most of Britain, but in Scotland, it's a week or two later, is, is in early May. There we go. So they, I did not know that. But spring is here. Spring there's is green here. shoots coming up everywhere. Yeah. And uh, on that note, I'm not on that note. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pass over to an interview that David um, recorded with um, Owen Coggins. <laughs> That's our worst link ever. But, you know, go with it. Go, take ownership. On drone metal mysticism. We'll find out what that is now. I'm here in sunny Milton Keynes for the Open University's Contemporary Religion and Historical Perspective Conference, where I'm lucky enough to be joined today by Owen Coggins, who is an honorary associate of the Religious Studies Department here. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. We've been talking about this interview for quite some time, quite some time um, but we finally managed to get it organised. Luckily, just as your book comes out, Let's start then with drone metal. What is it that we're talking about here? Um, okay, I guess um, I often describe it as uh, an extreme form of heavy metal that's characterised by kind of extremes of repetition, uh, distortion, extension, tracks that go on for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. So I went to a concert that was three hours long. And um, feedback and and um, other kind of sonic characteristics, but it's also characterised in the sort of discourse that surrounds it, um, that's produced by musicians, but also by uh, audiences. Um, this uh, lots of talk about mysticism and um, ritual and religious experience and transcendence and so on. And so that was the kind of starting point for me wanting to investigate it uh, for my for my PhD research. Now this isn't the first kind of study we've had of religious imagery um let, well let's start with metal particularly there's a there's a long history of kind of fairly obvious religious imagery yeah and so i think sort of from uh, black sabbath who are often understood as the sort of originary starting point of heavy metal and you've obviously got kind of um crucifixes and um, press photos taken in graveyards and accusations about um, Satanism and various kind of imagined occult practices. Um, and, and I think that uh, a real interest in sort of the power of religion and its symbols and perhaps new or sometimes oppositional kind of repositionings of, the, of that kind of uh, symbol, uh, images and language and, and even sounds, um, has I think been a, a, a really important part of metal um, f- from its beginnings. Um, I think perhaps what s- seems to me to be slightly different about this particular form 
uh, certainly in the way that um, academics have approached it, is that religion in metal has often been kind of uh, approached through uh, the lens of Christianity and metal, whether that's um, Christian heavy metal itself or discourses of anti-Christian sentiment in metal, um, sort of burning down churches in Norwegian black metal and so on. Um, and more recently, sort of more focus on um, various intersections of Satanism and paganism in in um, in metal. But that's it's often kind of approached in terms of a religious tradition and metal. Whereas what I was really interested in is the sort of um, bricolage and um, sometimes quite kind of orientalist appropriation and redeployment of a of a really vast range of different kind of religious symbols and sounds in this particular um, form of music. Now, the use of religious imagery in metal, particularly, I mean, it's it's a it's a very sort of deliberately transgressive kind of discourse. Although obviously it varies how serious they are, mm-hmm. but, but that's not. It, it, entirely what we find with drone is it yeah well i think I, th- I think the issue of seriousness is quite a quite an interesting one and i think it's often um i think humor in metal is often uh misunderstood um as perhaps one optional counterpoint to seriousness um and i think and, and so i think there's that's an interesting way to look at these things because in some ways there are um things which are done very very seriously which are at the same time completely ludicrous and absurd. Um, and um, one example is the classic 1996 record by Sleep, um, which has two alternate titles, Jerusalem, which references this, these kind of ideas of a Holy Land pilgrimage, uh, and also Dope Smoker. Um, so these Dope Smoker and Jerusalem are two alternative titles for this one single hour-long um, dirge classic of of um, stone and metal riffs, and it's often kind of referenced by listeners in terms of the lyrics being simultaneously ultra serious and completely ridiculous at the same time. And I think that kind of is an interesting way to think about how uh, some of these symbols might be mobilised and ideas might be uh, responded to. Um, which in the book I talk a little bit about. Um, an idea of, of listening as if. And I think in some ways, um, drone metal allows and the ways that people, audiences talk about it are going to concerts or listening to recordings as if they're ritual, as if they're mystical, as if they're somehow related in an ambivalent way to religion. And um, that kind of language sometimes shifts around. So the, the record I mentioned is often described even in the space of a, of a short 500-word review, for example, as like a pilgrimage or as a pilgrimage, as a sonic pilgrimage, as sounding like the music that pilgrims might listen to at the end of the pilgrimage. And so I think this kind of ambivalence um, that I kind of talk about as as listening as if it's ritualistic um, allows people to sort of explore and investigate uh, a kind of imagined religiosity without having to necessarily commit to certain kind of identity statements or, or um, um, dogmas or beliefs. And I think that's part of where the, where the power lies. And I think that also um, is part of the real value of music in this um, kind of exploration because it's a kind of, it affords a sort of imaginative space in which for people to kind of explore that. And that's something that's not unique to music, of course. That kind of mode is familiar in other forms of art that have got, uh, you know, the, there are 
visual artists and painters who specifically design their work to be experienced in these kind of uh, contexts. And you give a you made a nice distinction in the book about different modes of engaging with like certain kinds of music are engaged with in a different way than I think you you distinguish like your pop and rock and their mainstream musical forms that there's a different register of of uh, engagement with it. Yeah, I think that was really sort of. I mean, I don't necessarily want to make big claims about sort of the the specialness of yeah. drone metal in. Um, against the forms of music, but this was really responding to the ways that um, my the research participants talked about it, um, and there was often a very um, listeners often made a, a a very strong distinction between drone metal and other forms of music, and often even drone metal and other forms of metal, um, just um, in. Uh, partly because of the sort of the abstract nature of this kind of very droning dirge like music and the the practicalities such of how such as how long the tracks last um the real interest in vinyl as kind of creating a separate space um and and time in which to listen like that uh, people preferred often people preferred to listen on vinyl rather than um on digital formats because it created a certain kind of a special space and time around through which to listen. Um, and I think that really spoke to the kind of construction of, of ideas about ritual and mysticism in this kind of music, that there was a, there was a deliberate um, attempt to separate drone metal in, in, in sort of space and time, but also conceptually as something kind of set apart. And obviously um, there's, a, there's an implied construction of the sacred in that. Yeah, that that notion of specialness is something that I've actually come across in a few places. Um, it's quite interesting when you, even like for students talking about the study of religion, they want it to be something that's you know set apart. Even even the discourse itself um, is something separate. Yeah, I like that you mentioned the material culture, and there's a number of of um, interesting intersections here. I mean, the the vinyl aspect of it is is already talked about, but there's also particular aesthetic that goes along with particularly drone metal. But we also have um, material culture in terms of uh, you know sensory experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, it was. I mean, firstly, it was just great to. Um, kind of speak to people about this um, certainly quite extreme form of music and read thousands of reviews and things just because of the the creative and unusual ways that people talked about it. And that was one of the ways that came up a lot was um, people sort of talking about going to uh, concerts and the air becoming solid um, or having a real a sort of physical bodily experience of the sound. And so I thought that, yeah, material culture was actually a really kind of helpful way to think about that because it was almost like sound becoming um, kind of uh, physically mobilized for people or, or them kind of um, engaging with sound in, in, a, in a very physical way. Um, and I think that was um, an interesting way to kind of think also about, um, about mysticism in terms of the ways that um, people kind of use or interpret or operate on a particular kind of tradition, um, in this case, kind of uh, heavy metal, I suppose, as well as a sort of surrounding discourses about kind of transcendental experience and, and mysticism and so on, that it was almost a kind of a way to um, to experience sound as sound rather than 
or, or what sound itself sounds like um, or what sound itself feels like, as um, some of my participants put it, um, which I think um, yeah connects up to other aspects of the aesthetic in quite interesting ways, such as the, um, the um, interest with them. Um, black letter or fractur typography like the sort of gothic script that's familiar in a lot of um, uh, metal cultures as well as drone metal um, and, and what I loved about that was it's a real visual kind of um, manifestation of, of the distortion and amplification of, of a sign that's so important in the, in the sonic characteristics of the music. I find that really interesting the idea of the sort of fetishization of amplification um, that's it, it is noticeably different than most other forms even even mainstream rock and metal that it you know there's much more concern on the on the drum kit or the guitars rather than but in, in drone it's the amplification particularly and what i found interesting having been uh, a rock musician was that w- when you were started talking about this i was thinking well you've got the first stage of amplification you need in rock is that you've got to be louder than the drums because you have to play the drums loud to make them sound good. So there's a level of amplification you need to get your guitar to there for the band to sound like a rock band, right? But in drone, that bit becomes the bit that's of interest and you t- you go up a whole um, other level so that it's the, the the amplification itself that becomes the act. It's no longer something that you're doing in order to get to point A, it becomes point A itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I've, I've suggested that this is um, the the first or at least the only musical culture that I know of where the most important musical instrument broadly conceived is the amplifier rather than the guitar or, as you say, sort of anything else that's anything else that's being amplified. Although, interestingly, there are um, there is a real focus on um, amplification and speakers in dub reggae and certain forms of um, electronic dance music, which I also um, kind of discuss, because those forms of music have also attracted um, really quite sort of um, prevalent discourses of religious experience and mysticism. Um, but yeah, definitely, I think the the amplification as it's sort of the amplification of amplification is the is the, um, the is the thing that's really at issue. Um, and I think that that's a, an interesting way to think about that is that it's about kind of um, about a, an interrogation of transmission itself mm-hmm. and amplifying kind of symbols themselves in order to kind of investigate what their possibilities are rather than, for example, kind of communicate particular kinds of uh, musical semantics or, or structures. Yeah, it, it makes me, um, when you mentioned dance music, I immediately pictured the front of uh, 3AM Eternal by the KLF, where it's, it's uh, you know, it's a, an altar, and the sides of the altar are, are um, you know, huge amplifiers. And of course, the, the KLF were uh, enormously influenced by situationist theory and uh, and the kind of uh, post-hippie kind of early cybernetic idealism um, you know, uh, Tim Leary and those kind of people. Um, and they were very sort of consciously creating a temporary autonomous zone, mm-hmm. but they were using a lot of of um, religious imagery in doing it. Mm-hmm. Even the idea of time, you know, so it's 3 a.m., but it's 3 a.m. eternal. They, they have a lot of these similar kind of languages. Mm-hmm. And I think the, um, 
the the idea of drone itself is very much about kind of um or it it affords um uh, ways of talking about time which kind of uh, do similar things that they're sort of they're uh, physically and bodily experienced in a particular moment but they sort of open out onto these kind of um ideas about kind of archaic experience and forms of social organization um and so I thought, yeah, I, I kind of um, in the um, one of the chapters in the book also kind of talk about those um, uh, ways of the ways that audiences talk about drone metal being kind of about elsewheres and drone metal being giving access to um, these elsewheres that people discuss in terms of being transported to outer space or to kind of imagined empty deserts and so on. And I think that's a really kind of powerful an important way that people respond mm. to it. Um, not to say that sort of there's anything inherently connect, connected in the music, but just that, that the, those are connect, conventional ways of talking about the mm. music that have kind of sprung up around it, which seem to kind of have a, um, have a certain validity for, for people who are communicating about their engagement with this music. Nonetheless, I find that really interesting. And it, we really are thinking about utopias in the original sense of the word of, of nowhere, of places that are idealizations or, you know, uh, imagined spaces in some sense, um, that there's almost a sort of attempt to achieve through these kind of uh, uh, transient and drone kind of ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think there's there's um, in in dub and psytrance and in drone metal, which I, as I said, I sort of compare, there, there, there are different kinds of utopias. And I think you can also sort of working backwards from there, um, think about the reasons why there's such a strong impulse to try and construct these mm. uh, utopias in a very kind of temporary way, just, you know, over the course of a half an hour uh, recording or a, or a, an hour or so of, of a, live concert um so for example for for dub um in terms of a black atlantic diaspora we're kind of wanting to kind of um construct certain ideas about uh, an afrocentric religion for example um and i think perhaps for drone metal it's interesting sort of to speculate perhaps about um a kind of um what the what the construction of utopias might say about the um, the social situation of um, um, audiences that kind of as as a response to kind of alienation and disenchantment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, interestingly as well, almost pre-modern, despite the fetishization of of technology, there's a lot of wildernesses and uh, mm-hmm. and you know distant places, and uh, it's it's almost away from modernity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was an interesting example when um, um, one of the best-known drone metal bands, Sun, uh, performed at the Royal Festival Hall a couple of years ago. Um, they were supported by the support act was um, a, a group from Russia called Furpa, who've, who've supported Sun on a number of occasions, uh, who style themselves as performing authentic um, Bon Tibetan traditional chanting. And so, um, when you see these two things juxtaposed, it's it, um, the the Tibetan bon ritual, where there's kind of bowls of incense and um, 
figures in black robes doing vocal chanting and then you go out and have your uh, glass of wine at the break time and then you go back and then there's a very similar performance with uh, the sun band members in their in their black robes but it's um a very kind of um consciously updated version of this with like these extreme um extremes of amplification but sonically quite a similar palette i suppose they're they're working with um and i think that's a de- that's a very deliberate um association that they're trying to make with a with a certain kind of um imagined archaic ritual Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Let me uh, give you a deliberately kind of provocative question then. Um, So we've got a kind of sense of sacredness or specialness or however we want to call it or, 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 you know, temporary autonomous zone, however we want to put it. And we have quasi-religious musical forms. Which comes first? (laughs) You know, in which direction is the movement or is it mutually reinforced? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good question. It's one that I tried tried very hard to skip. (laughs) <laughs> I said it was but, deliberately provocative um, and in, uh, but uh, in order to skip it sort of focus instead of rather than kind of trying to um, there's, there was, a, put it this way there was a lot of claims about when in my uh, interviews and in the sort of reviews of this kind of music that, that drone metal really does hark back to ancient uh, in quotes tribal religious forms and, um, and so on Um with their kind of, and I think this is kind of deliberately played on by by some musicians, and it's certainly picked up on by um, by um, parts of the audience. Um, but my interest wasn't so much kind of proving or disproving mm-hmm. whether this really genuinely had connections to ancient religion, um, and in the same way that the sort of the the um, the group performing the Tibetan ritual music that I mentioned, um, I'm not so interested in you know, historical accuracy of their early music kind of production. Um, what's more interesting to me is kind of how those ideas are mobilized and why people find them important um, to kind of to draw on now. And I think in part it's kind of an attempt to make an authority claim or to or perhaps to recognize um, and after the fact legitimate um, something that they felt was quite a powerful engagement um, and then in order to sort of kind of situate that for themselves and for the kind of the listening community to sort of connect it to these older uh, imagined forms. Tell us then about how this relates to um, mysticism. And this is a large part of the book, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, I presume we're building from the kind of uh, idea that this is music which is deliberately experienced rather than passively heard. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so I think I guess following on from what we've been discussing, there's also quite a, a strong discourse of kind of perennialism that you find in Aldous Huxley and and so on. Um, in the way that that people talk about it, that it's accessing this kind of universal underlying um, form of religious experience. Now, that to me, there are some sort of troubling consequences of that kind mm-hmm. of idea that just erases all kind of specific differences. And there are some issues with with a kind of an Orientalist sort of grabbing of bits and pieces from all religions and kind of presenting them as if they're referring to a similar thing. Um, so for me, what was really valuable in trying to understand these um, kind of discourses of, of mysticism and ritual, given that so many people uh, f- who are coming from different kind of um, backgrounds and so on are using words that are notoriously difficult to pin down, such as it was a spiritual experience or it was, it was um, this music is mystical in some way. Um, for me, it was really valuable to um, look to the work of Michel de Soto, who both provides a really um, a really valuable way to look at um, the uses that audiences make of um, texts in popular culture, and also um, his uh, work on uh, mysticism. And um, so, um, and this approach to mysticism instead of kind of trying to trying to look behind the texts for this kind of unitive experience which the the scholar imagines is the same behind all of these particular instantiations uh, Michel de Soto um, by contrast sort of um, wants to look at the texts which are designated mystical and then identify certain kind of procedures or gestures or operations on an inherited language uh, that take place in these texts so for me that was really valuable for a start, because it kind of resolves or or displaces um, uh, a kind of division between text and experience, which mm-hmm. has um, been quite influential and quite problematically so, in my view, in the sort of 20th century study of mysticism, where there's an idea that, you know, mystical experiences are uh, ineffable, they're indescribable, and then you have texts which um, sort of fail um, nobly to describe them. Um, so the problem with that is that the um, the uh, the experience that's suggested as, that's, as being the same, um, there's not really any, any evidence for that. And then the actual kind of differences in texts are just attributed to the cultural differences in which these same experiences take place. Um, Michel de Soto, by contrast, sort of allows us to actually kind of look at the particular kind of mechanics and moves and gestures that actually take place in these texts. So, for example, talk, talking about um, how a, a language of the body emerges in the um, mystical text or text designated mystical in the 16th and 17th century, how they're um, interested in the materiality of signifiers, um, how um, the how people are um, how mystics are seen uh, by themselves as ultra-orthodox but by outsiders as heretical in some way for their kind of treatment of their inherited tradition. And so I think there was a number of these kind of gestures um, that Soto identifies in in mystical texts that I also observed in not only the ways that audiences spoke about their engagements with drone metal, but also in the sound itself. 
So we had similar, in the ways that people talk about going to concerts, you find these very similar uh, and familiar um, gestures of talking about mysticism and ritual. But I also thought it was quite a good description of what drone metal does to the tradition of heavy metal. So it, for example, takes on um, lots of um, signifiers from Black Sabbath, and but kind of overextends them and, and pushes them to their breaking point. Mm. Um, so for example... Um, the Sleep uh, album I mentioned earlier was described memorably by Julian Cope in a review as if uh, a bunch of California teenagers had found Black Sabbath's first four albums in the desert and started a religion based on <laughs> I it. I love that, yeah. Um, and so I think um, you can see that just even in the sound, that it's almost like taking a Black Sabbath song and extending it for an hour, sort of almost pushing it to its limits. And I think, yeah, this sort of fits with Sato's idea of mysticism as a um, as an operation or a performance in a text which kind of does something to an inherited tradition. Using drone metal then, are you using it, you're not so much using it as an example of mysticism, but as an example of how the language of mysticism is operated, am I understanding? Yeah, yeah. And does that have ramifications for other like more widely for how we we talk and think about mysticism. Yeah, I think so. I think um I think that it helps to um avoid some of the pitfalls of mysticism which as I sort of described before about um kind of conjuring the sort of fiction of of uh, an essentialist universalist experience which actually relies on particular ideas about subjectivity which are kind of rooted in a in a western ac- academic esteem I suppose um, and I think that's perhaps particularly important in our kind of contemporary political moment where we hear um, references to um, the 20th century study of mysticism um, in growingly in, in political discourse so for example um, Steve Bannon and Richard Spencer making mention of Julius Evola and uh, that's a very very problematic um imagination or depiction or mobilization of ideas about mysticism Ebola kind of um, wanting to forward a kind of, as he described it a racism of body soul and spirit and a, a sort of involvement in the school of fascist mysticism so I think these ideas can certainly be taken in some very troubling ways and I think at root they're often based on on a kind of essentialism and universalism which can be found in relatively benign forms in um, the ideas of sort of Huxley and Eliada and, and, and others, but which I think Soto gives us a much more sort of both ethically and, and epistemologically grounded way of actually approaching mysticism. In addition to actually saying, if we look at kind of the mechanics of what happens in the texts which are called mystical, then that's actually a much more empirically based way to look at mysticism than kind of imagining these kind of supposedly pure visionary experiences great so what's next for you where do you take this next um uh, good question um <laughs> i'm really interested in um i think i'm really interested in as i sort of start to talk about in in the, the final chapter um how this kind of relates to uh I, anthropological ideas about ritual and how that might be connected to uh ideas about um, the connection between music and, and various forms of 
social structure and imagining social structure. Um, so Jacques Attali's ideas about noise, for example, and which um, I think, given it, given that this form of music is very much about distortion and feedback and noise, um, I think there's there's maybe some some interesting connections that can be made with with um, sort of the ideas of Mary Douglas, for example, about the importance of dirt and and, and mm. the positioning in of those things in ritual. Um, I'm also really interested in kind of um, wading into debates about kind of heavy metal and um, mental health, um, and it's it's often been described as or associated with delinquency, both in kind of popular media, um, moral panics, as well as also in uh, a certain amount of academic literature. Um, so, except think- in fact, heavy metal fans are statistically happier and healthier than the norm, I believe, <laughs> according to a recent survey. Yes, well, yeah, I think you've got to take all of these things with a pinch of salt. <laughs> I mean, I, and I think that's, um, uh, I think that's that's perhaps why it's so interesting because I think the debate is so uh, polarized. But I'd actually want to kind of maybe make room for the fact that maybe some kinds of music can be good for you and other kinds of music can be bad for you, um, and that maybe the debate's a bit more nuanced and complex than than some of these polemic positions have suggested. We love nuance here at the Religious Studies Project, so uh, thank you for taking part. Thanks for inviting me. It's been very interesting. And uh, before we go, I just want to remind the listener to rock hard, rock heavy, and rock lobster. It's wonderful to hear you and Owen droning on there, David. Nice. And, uh, you know, I hope the conversation didn't get too heavy. That was recorded at the Open University's Contemporary Religion and Historical Perspective Conference, which was what? It was in February, so a couple of months ago. That's the second interview we've had from there, and we've got one more to come. Fantastic. That was a productive conference for everyone then. Good. Regular uh, visitors to the RSP site will notice that, you know, we've still been having some issues. We, we, I think the last time that we recorded, we, we moaned a bit about our previous host and that you should never use them. Um, move to a new host, so hopefully this general stability of the site existing. Yeah. The site will keep existing, but um, there's some issues with the PHP on the site, yeah. which is already lingo that's a little bit too fancy for me. But the features will still be there. Podcasts are still there at the moment. The podcast will always still be there through iTunes, Player FM, Google Play, uh, YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if things do get a little bit disrupted over the next few weeks, we sincerely apologize. We've wanted to do this redevelopment over the summer when we were in our break. But yeah, unfortunately, the problems with our previous host uh, forced our hand. Uh, you'll have maybe been aware that we were down for most of a week, and that was why. That wasn't anything to do with us, but we had to fix it. So, yeah. Um, it, there is a bit of disruption, but not as much disruption as there would have been had we not dealt with it, unfortunately. Exactly. Um, so, podcast outfit, uh, output will hopefully be continuing as normal, which means that next week um, we'll have an interview that I recorded with um, a cultural anthropologist, a cognitive anthropologist, a primatologist, uh, with uh, Professor Augustin Fuentes of um, the University of Notre Dame, and he was the Gifford lecturer at the University of Edinburgh uh, back sort of end of February, start of March. Um, And so the 
interview, I think I've called it um, belief, evolution, and the human niche or something. Why do we believe evolution, primates, and the human niche? Um, So he takes a wonderful um, evolutionary perspective. We talk a lot about um, primates, because in the title there. And just, um, and he's got a very interesting model of um, belief, which sort of pushes beyond that sort of what we might think of as a Tenorian conception. Excellent. Sounds fascinating. Sounds like the kind of thing that Tommy usually does. Um, so, yeah. Exactly. I think Tommy was quite jealous that he could not come to the lecture, but hey, maybe he's writing the response. I don't know. Yeah. That's Thomas J. Coleman III, our managing editor, and, uh, you know, he's the hub in the wheel that is the Religious Studies Project. The spider at the centre of the web. Absolutely. As... Oh, we don't need to do I keep doing that. I keep going to do as always, and you can find us on the way. We, yeah, we, we don't, streamlined that. Yeah, we've, we've, we've improved things. Professionalized. So, yeah, well, what else is there to say, Chris? Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.